Welcome to the Highly Objective Podcast, where we talk to cannabis industry executives and investors and go into the weeds on recent news. Why don't we sort of start off with, you know, what most people have kind of um, been thinking about Mary Med for the past three months with it, which is we had the untimely passing of your co-founder, you stepping into the CEO role on an interim basis, and then now on a full-time basis. So kind of walk us back to sort of, you know, the, the days, uh, you know, after Bob's passing and sort of how you led the company and how the company's dealt with it. Dave, it's great to be here again. It's nice to see you. It's been a while. Um, yeah, it was very sad to lose a very good friend, a brother, a uh, partner of mine for many years that we built this company from the ground up together and uh, fortunate uh, that we had started preparing a succession plan, not for Bob, but for the whole company, for every role. And uh, I think we were very fortunate to have that ready to go because I was already at a level where I could help out because we were very successful on bringing in Susan Valer, our new CFO, who relieved me to be able to go and expand my wings a little bit more and take over the presidency and help Bob continue to grow the company through new initiatives that we put through a strategic plan to continue the growth. So with the untimely passing of my good friend, Bob, I was able to step in as the temporary CEO, but continue everything that we had already started. We had already completed many items that Bob and I had put out, but we had a lot that we were still working on. We have presently eight projects going on, just showing the growth that we have this year. And the fact that we closed on a $35 million loan with Chicago Atlantic that gave us the fund to fund these eight projects all at one time gives us the ability to hit our goals and objectives of the company. And that's where I've been concentrating my time was first finishing the $35 million loan and then continuing the expansion of the company with these eight projects. You know, we're building out the company here in Massachusetts, expanding our grow and processing facility to basically be able to help with the two new dispensaries that we're opening. Quincy, which we just closed on uh, two weeks ago, and now Beverly, which we're just waiting on state final approval to give us the ability to open our third retail store here in Massachusetts. By expanding our grow and processing center, we'll have the ability to continue to supply ourselves, plus all the other 200 plus dispensaries in the state. You know, in the state of Massachusetts, Betty's Eddie's and Bubby's Baked and Vibations and Nature's Heritage are all top sellers within the state. And we've taken that success also to Maryland, where in Maryland, we have successfully opened our retail store last uh, October, and we're continuing that growth and building out an additional grow area in that facility in Maryland to handle the demand that's going to come with adult use as we continue to look to grow more in Maryland with not just the adult use, but we still have the ability to expand our retail brand name in that state. Then in the state of Illinois, we're very excited, you know. We're building out a brand new uh, cultivation and processing center that will give us the ability to re-enter the market with the number one Betty's Eddie's that was there when we had a contract with GTI 
who they grew so fast that they uh, didn't have the ability to continue to do our Betty's Eddie's, but we're bringing it back and we're very excited to re-enter that market. In the addition, we've also uh, already announced the addition of uh, another dispensary that we're building out in Casey, Illinois. That will give us our fifth dispensary within a very fast growing state. And it's an exciting time for us. Then in Missouri, we're working on a processing license where we're building out a processing center to bring all of our brands into that state, except for our flower brand, because we're not a grow, we're just going to be processing. So Betty's Eddie's, Bubby's Baked and Vibations, plus our in-house brand will be in that state where we're very sure that we'll be one of the top brands, if not the top brand, very quickly in that state. And in Ohio, we want a license and we're in the construction phase of building out a dispensary in the state of Ohio, where that state is a very fast growing state, great state, big state. And we're really looking forward to being there and building out our name and recognition, even on the retail side, but we'll continue to look to grow within that state as we keep moving forward. Yeah, no, you guys have a, a great footprint, six states and Ozzy, Missouri has been on fire and having processing in that state should be very beneficial to have your brands in it very soon. I want to go back to, you know, the Irvine acquisition in Massachusetts. I actually always assumed you guys had, you know, your max of three dispensaries in Massachusetts since you guys are headquartered there. So it was price to, to find out that through Irvine, you're going to get your second dispensary and then you're going to be opening another one there. Um, kind of why did you guys open up three mass dispensaries earlier? We had been working with several different cities and towns. It's very difficult in the state of Massachusetts to find a town in the areas that we were looking to support a host community agreement. Under the state code, you need to have a host community agreement, and those are very difficult to come by. We actually closed on the uh, Beverly location uh, back in December, but had that deal done months before that and built out a beautiful dispensary. But in the state of Massachusetts, the time it takes to get through the state CCC and get approvals is like worse than walking the Boston Marathon. It takes more than a, more time than that. So we've been dealing with those slow transitions, but we've been very excited because when this Quincy opportunity came up, the Irmont uh, Dispensary and Cultivation, I think it was number seven in the state to open originally. That location, if you know Massachusetts, that area where it is located has a lot of towns and cities around it that don't have cannabis ability in those cities and towns. So being in that location, bringing our delivery service, where this license also came with a host community for not just the medical, but it had the adult use already in place. We were able to get the assignment of those two host communities. So now we're applying for the adult license in the uh, city of Quincy's in the state right now. And once we're able to bring the adult use to that location, that's gonna be just a real great opportunity for the whole South shore of Massachusetts to get high quality cannabis at a very beautiful location, ease of coming in and out. And, and are these the right three cities to kind of pick to be in in Massachusetts? You know, obviously the market is very competitive now versus where it was when it was first starting up, you know, the first three or four years. Um, so most people have kind of been waiting to open in, in a Boston or a Cambridge. So are these the right three locations for you? 
Well, I'm I'm from the Massachusetts area, born and raised. I've lived on the North Shore and I've lived most of my time on the South Shore. If you draw a line from Beverly down to Middleborough, you're basically going right through the city where Quincy is. And it's a beautiful line that we can be able to supply the whole area. But most of the towns and cities around our locations, un, um, unlike Middleborough, they don't allow other medical or recreational dispensaries. Up in the North Shore of Beverly, yeah, the town of Salem or the city of Salem, which is only about, I think it's 15 miles. But to drive those 15 miles, unfortunately, that's going to take you 45 to an hour to drive that short distance because of all the traffic and the side roads you have to go to. So the locations that we've uh, gone after, Quincy and Beverly, are adding locations that are going to be an area where there's very little competition around that will be able to supply a big, vast uh, mileage of consumers in high populated areas where traffic is. So it's really about location and customer needs. And these two locations, I think, are terrific locations. Yeah, there's competition within 15, 20 miles, but it's who has the ease to get those locations to bring those customers on and off the highways or on and off side streets. And it's then customer service, loyalty, and a selection of products that you can bring to the market. We've been in this, or I've been in this industry for many years. Bob and I started back in the early 2000s and uh, have many years of experience of what to build. So when we build our facilities, we're building them big enough to basically handle both adult and medical with a big enough vault floor space for the customers to be able to enjoy. You know, our Beverly location may not be the size that we want today, but we're setting it up to bring the uh, solutions to that area and we will expand as we find necessary. And then I want to talk a bit more about the recent acquisition you did for Ermont, where this was actually a part of a receivership. And I think the first successful one in which the CCC approved. Um, tell us a bit more about that process, how did that play out, and then how does that inform future M&A strategies for you? Well, the process of doing it through a uh, closeout that was under receivership it, there were many challenges. I mean, why was the company in receivership? What did they do wrong? Why why should we take a risk and buy something that was going the opposite direction? Everything that you were just asking me, why do I want to go to the location, is all the questions that we did ask. Is it possible to bring this business back? We've looked at it. We've looked at all the demographics of the areas of what we can do right there. What they've done wrong, we know how to fix it then this is a opportunity for us, as you said, not just in Massachusetts, but in other states, to sit here and take a look at other opportunities. People rush into the cannabis industry not knowing what they're really entering. This is a real business. This has to be run like a business. And people that don't have any business sense that are jumping in thinking it's an easy dollar are realizing this is not easy. The 280E rules, the supply and demand chain, and then the fact that the uh, cost of flour is plummeting drastically in every state. If you're not doing this proper in terms of grow and processing in the wholesale, or making sure that you have good customer service, good locations, plenty of parking, vault space, and the fact that you can retain under a normal retail operation, 
this is all about understanding this is real. You have to treat these people like real retail customers, not the people that used to walk around in tie-dye shirts and just uh, think getting high was fun. No, this is a real business. It's not just people getting high. It's like the alcohol business that's running a liquor store, putting them in the right location and keeping the customer loyalty. Yeah, and on that point, you guys have chosen more so to focus on your own branded portfolio rather than license from other brands. I, I think back in July 2019, you did announce a licensing agreement for, for seven states with Bintz. Uh, can you tell us, first of all, you know where that relationship with Bintz is at and then kind of why the focus on your own brand versus licensing other brands that may be more well-known in California or, or other states? Yeah, we, we were out there in the market. Like I said, Bob and I being in this business for so long, we had created our brands to be very different and very competitive in the markets. But you had to be able to develop a product kind of like a McDonald's or a Coca-Cola where you can have the consistency, the look, the feel that people can come to trust. And when you license it out to other states, you have to actually have a staff that can go there and produce that consistency. You have to create the formulas, the processes. We have successfully done it with our brands. Then when we started working with other brand manufacturers, such as Binsk, Binsk need for a chocolate kitchen and for some of their other projects, the upfront cost that we had to come out of pocket to buy the equipment and to come up with the space, we just weren't ready to dedicate that space to a product that wasn't ours or the capital that would take away from our ability to build out a facility to grow and process in. So we kept concentrating on what we had. In Massachusetts, we were totally capped out in our kitchen and still are. To bring anybody else's products in there would be very difficult because it would take away from our own brands. As we expand, if we do have the ability to have additional room, then we would continue with a Binsk or somebody else to bring in additional items, like you said, that are in California or elsewhere. But it's more about getting our name recognition out there just the same way as those companies that are in California. Because California isn't the place where all these products have ever been launched and come from. We have done a very great job with the Betty Zetties, and we're now adding other things to Betty Zetties, such as sleep and uh, um, passion, and there's other things that you can do. So Betty's Eddie's continues to grow in every market. And I think that's what makes us very successful is that we're very particular of who we partner up with. We want to keep that Coca-Cola rolling out so that every time you go buy that Betty's Eddie's or a Bubby's Baked or a Vibations, you know what you're getting. You have to have that consistency, that flavor, the taste, and the consistency of making sure that the customers are not going to be given more THC than the precision dosing that we do do. Tell us more about your M&A strategy going forward. We're going to continue to be very disciplined and cautious of making sure that we're only buying what we feel is fitting into our balance sheet and income statement without bringing, we have to have the value there for our shareholders. And we have to make sure that we're being diligent in everything that we do, that we're not overextending and overpaying. We've been very diligent in really working with partners, writing the licenses, getting them into business, working with those on partners, and then rolling them into the company. We have gone out and we've bought some licenses in Illinois to expand our retail 
uh, brand in the license for the cultivation and processing. We're looking to go vertical in as many states as we possibly can. So we'll continue to focus on states that we're presently in, but then look at, at other states such as Texas that we hopefully are gonna apply for where there's gonna be potential growth in fast limited license states. Do you feel the need to be vertical in the markets that you play in? Vertical is our goal. It's not necessarily the important piece, such as going into Missouri, a market that's already existing, that's been doing very well. We're going in with our branded products with the, with the processing license. That will give us an indication of how good that market is and how difficult it is to break into that market. We were the first MSO to go into that market and buy a license, and we're working on building out that processing center. And we're very excited to bring a national brand of our products into that market. And I think the market will be very accepting to it, as the state of Illinois has also been. So even though Missouri is supply constrained right now, you went go after a cultivation license and build something out there? The manufacturing license is much quicker and uh, less expensive to build out. A cultivation center is a much longer project with a much larger dollar output. So to go into this market and pay for a license that's not existing today, you're putting a lot of money in. If we were to go into this market and put a little bit of money into a sorry, a processing center and build out, understand this market, those opportunities to become vertical in that state will come with either other people that are unable to run their business in the proper sense to grow in high quality product. And then we have an opportunity to go in and take something over, or we can look at that time at by getting our own license and building from the ground up what we know how to do best. So you ended 2022 with 134 million in revenue for 2023. You guys have provided guidance of 150 million in revenue. Where is that 16 million incremental revenue going to come from? Uh, a lot of that growth over the next year or two is going to come from our expansion into new markets like Illinois. Bringing in the uh, wholesale business there will help us with the growth in that market. Entering a market of Missouri and building out the brand recognition in Missouri, there's gonna be the big opportunities in that state. In states like Massachusetts and Maryland, Maryland is gonna be a huge increase for us with adult use coming on, but we have to be prepared. We have to build out and be prepared to help supply that state with the necessary medicine, sorry, cannabis and cannabis products that are necessary within the state. Massachusetts has seen a turndown in the um, cost of flour and wholesale prices. So everybody felt that effect. We've got a very loyal uh, following right now. And that's because we make one of the top quality products. We're number one selling with our Nature's Heritage and Betty Zetti. So being able to keep that consistency, be able to get that top shelf pricing will help us continue our growth through loyalty and adding additional customers. It may not be as fast of a growth as the uh, other states where we're just entering or there's expansion with the state of Maryland with the adult use. You know, Missouri just went adult so that there's that opportunity of not just capturing the medical side, but now the adult side. And, you know, our Ohio retail store, as we look at that market closer, we're hoping to try to grow in that market as a going to be a fast growing market there. And it's because of the limited licenses and the potential of, of a adult use in the future there. So we're very 
pumped up about the uh, future because of our knowledge, how to grow this at our pace, not the pace of the industry. From a revenue mix standpoint, how does that look going forward? As we're growing, if you've been listening to what I've given for what we're working on, adding in Missouri, adding in the Illinois wholesale, that's going to help us bring that more down to a level field because Massachusetts adding two dispensaries, yeah, we're going to add some revenue on the retail side, but we're also expanding our operations to keep the wholesale business going. So it will be a much uh, ability to try to bring those closer together by going vertical in as many states as possible. You know, adding dispensaries, the dispensaries do have higher numbers because you're Wholesale is usually about 40 to 50% less on a sales figure, but we can generate a lot more volume by shipping to everybody and having that following throughout the industry. So we look to continue to grow in the wholesale market while continuing the slower growth in the retail. But right now, retail is still outpacing the wholesale. So you currently have three different dispensary brands, Thrive, First State Compassion and Panacea Wellness. Um, are you looking to consolidate into one brand going forward? Uh, we're working on having a review of the marketing teams reviewing the effects of changing the brand name. Uh, right now, Thrive is our brand in Illinois. We have Panacea here in Massachusetts and Maryland, and we're moving into Ohio with uh, Thrive. So we are looking at trying to consolidate names or what the effect would be if we change the names completely. We want to we want to make sure that we don't lose customers over the confusion of what the name is. Our name really is about the high quality of service and customers care. And we don't want to scare people away by just changing. We have to understand the whole process and what it's going to take to do it successfully. So you've also provided guidance of about $30 million in CapEx this year. Could you give us a breakdown of that CapEx? That $30 million in CapEx is going to be spread out, as I was saying earlier. We've got the expansion here in Massachusetts for the cultivation processing, the dispensary in Beverly. We're putting some money into expanding the Quincy retail operation and re purposing the grow there to do a little bit more of a pheno hunt to help us expand our our selection throughout the Massachusetts market and beyond. Then in Illinois, we're building out a cultivation and processing center. In addition to that, we're building out the processing center in Missouri and another dispensary in the state of Ohio. So the projects that we have going on, total eight, Beverly and Massachusetts, I apologize, I missed that one, was the addition. Yeah, and, of the and I, John, could, could you provide the breakdown or like the rough range of, of you know amounts for those projects? Uh, I cannot uh, give the breakdown of the projects. I don't have that with me. I apologize. Yeah, no worries. I mean, it, uh, I'd say the two larger, the three largest would be really the cultivation in Illinois and then the uh, expansion of uh, um, Illinois, sorry, sorry, expansion of Massachusetts, Maryland, and then the uh, Missouri would be the next in line. And then you guys, you know, going back to what you mentioned earlier, have a, a $35 million credit facility that you took out from Chicago Atlantic. Where does that leave the company from an overall debt perspective and against, you know, what sort of cash positions? Um, the uh, 
balance sheet, we're even with this $35 million loan, we still have a very strong balance sheet. It, our overall debt is not um, that far off from where it was, even with the $35 million. Our debt coverage is very strong. We're going to have a continued strength of a uh, stronger balance sheet as we continue these completions of these projects and bring in more revenue. We have positive cash flow, positive earnings, and just bringing in the $35 million is not going to stop us from uh, being able to grow and continue the positive increase in our cash and cash flow. So how should we think about financing needs for the rest of this year, right? So overall, um, today's March 22nd, you guys are down 44% in the past year from a stock price standpoint, but that's actually much improved versus MSOS, the ETF, which is down 71%. Um, so from a financing need, like how should we think about Merrimed for, for this year? Merrimed's uh, uh, needs right now are all covered with that $35 million. We have uh, positive cash flow that will help any additional minor increases that we may run into. But everything that we have CapEx-wise is coming from that $35, including the closing of the Quincy, the uh, expansion costs that we've already started. And we have ability to still uh, get a couple mortgages that if we needed additional money, mortgages are much cheaper money because they're secured by real estate and we have banks that are willing to give us real mortgage rates. Yeah. So uh, on that point, real mortgage rates, is that a, a few, uh, you know, a couple hundred bips like uh, above what I would get from a like residential mortgage or what kind of mortgage rates are, are you talking about? Yeah. I mean, mortgage rates, I mean, we have traditional mortgages already on our books that are anywhere at five, five and a half, six percent. And new rates right now are coming in around uh, seven, seven and a half. Wow. Yeah, that, that's great. I mean, you're, you're certainly not that much higher than where uh, consumers can get their, their mortgage rates at. Correct. I mean, we a standard business today could probably borrow on a standard mortgage anywhere from six and a half to seven for real estate. And do you guys own all your real estate or what's sort of the, the status on, on that? We own the majority of our real estate. There are several projects that we lease. We have a couple of projects where we have a lease to own if we choose to. But uh, no, we our big operating plants, we own all of them right now, except for, uh, no, we actually own all of our processing facilities. And you know, going back to to the stock, um, you know, you've done better than the the index for the industry. But what measures are, are you doing, and what's kind of worked to sort of get Mary Med more attention from institutional capital or even retail investors um, to to make sure you have that volume? Yeah, we're working with Grassland and our internal uh, control people um, to try to get more recognition of who we are. I still think that the market doesn't understand who Marimed is, how we are in this market, why isn't our stock trading higher? People still don't know us. People are still unheard of who Marimed is, even though we're the number one of the top in terms of earnings, cash flow, and EBITDA. I mean, our size may not put us in the top three, but we are definitely a very strong contender, and we're going to continue to grow and show people that we're the real thing. It's trying to work with people like you to get out there who we are and for people to understand that this is a real company with real cash flow 
and we're going to continue. We're going to tell people our stock deserves to be higher and everybody's seeing that, but just not enough institutional investors can get into the stock. It's too many day traders still. So we're really hoping for the banking change, but I don't see that happening anytime soon. Right. And especially with what's happened the past few weeks with Silicon Valley Bank and First Republic, like I'm hearing that there's going to be from a banking standpoint, more generally, more attention paid to kind of resolve that before safe banking gets another look or any sort of banking reform in cannabis, right? Absolutely. I mean, I was just talking with my staff earlier today about the effects of the uh, Silicon Valley Bank. I mean, knock on wood, we had some funds at that bank and the government stood up and helped us uh, be able to get those funds out of there and not have to worry if we were over the 250. Banking in this industry is already difficult with the banking industry being where it is today. I definitely don't think the government's going to be focusing on the Safe Banking Act when they got to correct what we have going on right in front of us with real banking needs for all consumers, not just cannabis. Yeah, that's that's interesting. You you bring up the point that Silicon Valley Bank, um, you had some exposure to that. Like I, I didn't think they banked any cannabis company. So help us understand a bit more about how there's even a relationship there. <laughs> well, we have real estate that's not related to the sale of cannabis. So we have two different operations. We have a real estate operation and a uh, managed service operation. Then we have our cannabis touching operations, which are correct. Those are the ones that have the more difficulty getting banking relationship. Our real estate operations, they're the ones that are getting the mortgages that are standard mortgages. They can get regular banking. All they're doing is bringing in rent checks, not just from cannabis tenants, but we do have a few properties where we have multiple tenants, where we do bring in some additional funds from outside the cannabis industry. And those are really treated as regular commercial operating accounts. But as uh, you, you heard, you don't want to keep higher balances than 250. And we had a few that were slightly above. That would have been really bad for us to have to lose that type of money. So we've been very smart. We've been diversing into other banks, keeping our balances under the FDIC limits and making sure we're not exposed, except in the cannabis banking, because you really don't have much of a choice of where you can go. So if the banking industry goes for a big crash, you can see a lot of cannabis companies being in trouble if they are in a bank with their cannabis funds and they can't get to that. That's a risk to all of us. The ones that don't have any banking that's doing it cash only, God bless them. It may be the, uh, the Cold War coming again, but no, I think banking is a very important piece, but we're helping a lot of the smaller banks have the cash on hand to be able to lend and make themselves stronger. That's why I'm not as worried about the cannabis money as I was about the real estate. Got it. Make, makes sense to kind of spread that exposure around. Um, so, so let's talk about sort of cost optimization a bit more. So um, you, know, you guys ended the year with a little bit under 600 employees. Uh, there's certainly been layoffs in the industry. How do you guys project sort of your workforce going forward to, to look? Well, I'm happy to say that we're not having any cutbacks. As a matter of fact, we're probably hiring close to 200 more employees this year with our expansion, but also having to fill other roles at all of our facilities. We're not cutting back. We're, we're in this for the long run to grow this business to the next level. We want to be a tier one operator, and we truly believe that we can be a champion. 
Yeah, I assume that tier one operator, are you referring to being a, a tier one sort of top five MSO as people define it in this industry? Yeah, I'm up there. I want to be one of the top five, if not the top uh, cultivation and dispensary operator in the country. Yeah, and I think that has more obviously to, to do with scale and sort of where market caps are than sort of margins. Um, so certainly seems like you guys are doing the, the right things from a margin and an operating cash flow standpoint. Yeah, um, we've always been very, very conservative in making sure that the top priority is making sure that we're positive cash flow and positive earnings and maintaining that, not changing just to grow. We have to continue the growth through smart moves that continue to give our shareholders the best uh, ability to make money. Yeah, and you guys actually, from a 21-22 perspective, had positive diluted EPS. So uh, two cents in, in 21 and four cents in, in 22. So certainly uh, positive EPS is, is also rarity in this industry. Yeah, and we're proud of that. And we're going to continue that so that shareholders will see the value of investing in Maramed and learning more about who we are. It's all about getting out there and teaching people all this information that you're bringing up about our EPS and all the other positives of cash flow and earnings. And on that point, as you're looking for more institutional investors for both you know, new institutional investors and current ones, as you're making the rounds on you know, going to these banking conferences or, or something like a Benzinga, are you seeing more new institutional investors come into the fold or at least interested in, in wanting to learn about cannabis investments, even in this environment? I'm definitely seeing a lot more people coming in wanting to learn more. Unfortunately, I just haven't seen enough institutional people wanting to make that step over and take that, that first step into the cannabis industry. And I think that's where I think if our stock was a little higher price, people will have a little bit more confidence. But, you know, we've been, it's been asked of us uh, why you don't do a reverse split is because of the fact is this is not the time to make a reverse split and just race back down to where you are. We'll do a reverse split as we grow in its, its best interest of our shareholders. And only at that time would we do it. We're going to basically grow and continue to bring in shareholder value by our earnings our EPS and everything else that is what a shareholder wants. And eventually we'll get that price to go back up and we'll show them the value. And eventually one day we'll be able to say, hey, we're one of the first to make a distribution. So that's our goal. And I know you guys don't really put it out publicly in your presentation, but are there certain key metrics that you sort of, when you're speaking to these interested investors, caught yourselves against uh, other Canvas companies are publicly traded similar size, whether that's from a, a net debt perspective, from a EBITDA coverage ratio, you know, growth margins. Um, what do you kind of look at when you're comping yourself to the, the competition? Well, the biggest thing that we look at when we're comping against the competition, people ask us what's making us different. The answer is very simple. It's our management team. As you, as you opened up the conversation and asking how it went, with the transition when Bob passed away, it's because of our management team that we've put in place that makes us different than everybody else. We've got a very experienced, long educated uh, cannabis team that's been together and is ready to grow this together and bring in people that will complement us. I think that's what makes us different. And we haven't gone out and just acquired to acquire. We're going out and growing this business 
with our management team's expertise in teaching others how to do it properly. Yeah, I think management is certainly key in that continuity in this industry is also very key. You want to make sure you don't have management, especially at the C-level turnover that, that happens too often. No, as you've seen, I mean, we have not had a lot of C-level turnover. We uh, bring in people from many different industries, not just the cannabis industry, but we bring them in because they fit into the family effect that we have put in place. We truly run this business as a still a small business, even though we keep growing year over year and quarter over quarter. We want to continue the growth, but we want to keep it as a smart business. And it's one of the challenges is not letting the size of your company take control of you. We've got a great board that supports us and understands what we're trying to do. Now with my directive and my management team, I believe that we can continue to grow this in the same direction that we started 15 years ago when Bob and I got into this business. So, so after management, what would you say are the you know, other two differentiators versus that competition? The uh, high quality and good product that we continue to be able to go into every state and reduplicate and redo it in every state so that we consistently have that high quality, whether it's the flower or the Betty's Eddie's or Vibations or Bubby's Baked, that they get the consistency. You get that same quality, high loving taste of the flower. I mean, we are a more of a craft grown flower company than a manufacturing company where we don't care what the flower looks like. We put a lot of love and passion into our flower. Okay, so management one, quality of, of products two, and then what's third? Margins, making sure that we're watching our costs and that we're able to produce this product at a reasonable price so that we can keep it in the market, even in this downturn. We have been very fortunate that we've had a lot of experience in this industry that the downturns in three of the markets has not affected us like it's affected a lot of the other companies. You were talking about layoffs. We don't go out and overhire. We hire just enough. We are all very willing to roll up our sleeves. I may be the CEO, but I'm not scared about going and plunging a toilet. I'll do what it takes to help keep this company afloat. And then from a margin perspective, you know, there certainly is gross margin compression. Uh, you know, some that you guys have seen from 22 over 21 going from 54.6% in 2021 to 47.7% in 2022. Um, you haven't, I don't think, given publicly what gross margin estimates may be for this year, but where do you see sort of those gross margins going? Is it flat? Is it declining a little bit? Where do you think gross margins end up for this year, especially to your point about Merrimad being more of a, a premium pricing for some of the brands? Well, the margins, as uh, you, you brought up, I mean, the margins did go down a little bit, but part of that was our buildouts and our growth. We're going to see some fl flat, maybe a slight increase, but the other part of the margins that is continuation of the economy, which affects you, is what's happening in the U.S. economy overall, that the cost of all these supplies and materials you have to buy, you still have to be able to buy them at a right price and understand how to use them in a proper fashion so that you're not overspending to produce the same flour. You know, our nutrients, which we watch all the time, uh, I, have a, I gotta be very happy and 
proud of my COO who makes sure that we have the top quality uh, nutrients, but it's more important that his staff knows how to use them properly so we get the high quality flour without having to put too much nutrients in and drain more of the bucket. We have to be able to have good controls of our, our um, purchasing and our grow so that we're able to produce high quality flour at the lowest possible price. And, and last question for you, since Mary Med and you, know, you and, and Bob have a background in sort of applications and, and winning applications, um, from an organic standpoint, are you guys still applying for licenses? And if you are, what markets are you paying attention to? Yeah, I mean, we're not scared to write applications. It's how we started this whole business. Um, as I said earlier, we're still writing some applications. We're right now writing an application in the state of Texas, which are due at the end of April. We're looking at other states and we're choosing when we write an application. We supported an applicant in Connecticut for social equity, which won. And it's just continuing to choose the states that make the most sense for us in terms of where to put those applications in and support a group or to write them ourselves. So is it safe to assume you guys aren't really targeting the South? So something like a Mississippi or an Alabama, when those applications opened up, wasn't interesting to Merrimed? It's all interesting to Merrimed. And yes, we have been looking at Alabama and Mississippi. And when the time comes, we'll take a look at those if the opportunity is right for us and we have the ability to put the effort in to write the application and also build them out, then we'll take that as a task of hand. But until that time, we do watch each of the states and we do discuss when it is right to jump into those states. Yep, makes sense. I mean, certainly your footprint today across six states is more of the Northeast and now Midwest with Missouri going a bit stronger in addition to Ohio opening up soon and, you know, a, a fifth dispensary opening in Illinois. So if, if you guys do add any of the Southern states, I would kind of think of you as a, a three region uh, MSO. Well, that would be our goal is to be more than just a two region. You're correct. Uh, one region that we're not rushing to is the California market in the West Coast. We've looked at it many times. If we find the right opportunity, we would step in. But you have to find the one that makes the most sense. As you said, we've been very careful about how we spend our money, and that's not changing even under my watch. I yeah, appreciate that, John. Thanks so much.